Welcome back to Russian Roulette, the podcast from the Russia and Eurasia program at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. I'm your host, Olga Olaker, here in the CSIO studio with my co-host, Jeff Mankoff. Hello there. Uh, so today we have a really interesting conversation uh, with Leonid Narcissian. Or you do, at least. I do, yeah. Well, we have it for, <laughs> for the audience. Um, Leonid is a military analyst with the Regnum Information Agency, and he's also editor-in-chief of the New Defense Order Strategy magazine. Leonid and I talked about the state of Russian military analysis in Russia, media and think tank landscape, what it's like to run a military journal, uh, what people aren't paying enough attention to in regards to the Russian armed forces, new military technologies, the Russian military industrial complex, all the good things. And then after that, uh, for one of our current affairs segments, uh, Jeff and I are going to talk a little bit about what's been going on in Armenia. So welcome, Lenin. Thank you for joining us. Hi. Thank you. So I thought uh, we would begin by talking a little bit. You edited a journal called uh, The New Defense Order Strategy. Can you talk a little bit about what that is and uh, what sorts of articles appear in it? Uh, this uh, magazine is about uh, Russian military uh, in the in the industry complex mostly and about arms market and uh, uh, we have a really big lack of analytical centers think tanks in mm -hmm. Russia and we are trying to uh, take this space by doing a good magazine mm -hmm. so we are trying to to write nice articles which are uh, don't have propaganda inside of them mm -hmm. so it's some objective so and practical information mm -hmm. so uh of course not everybody is reading this kind of uh, magazines because it's specialized but uh, it's becoming pretty popular uh, because uh, we are working with the best uh, authors in Russia and uh, we are not working with guys who are just mm -hmm. speaking about uh, uh, propaganda things like I don't know Russian army is mm -hmm. the most strongest and everything is better than American. All these things are uh, 90% of Russian media is writing things like that. So we're trying to be uh, on the other side. So who are your readers? Look, our magazine uh, is um, for free. Uh, you can have it on uh, all uh, military events like mm -hmm. uh, military shows, military conferences. So uh you can uh, see the pdf on the internet mm -hmm. mostly it's people who work in military industry or are interested in uh, military uh, things so one print uh, run is 10000 of copies uh, most of time and uh, all the magazines are realized and uh, everybody likes it because uh, you won't find an, a magazine in russia which uh, is better made mm -hmm. and it's very nice graphics and it's very nice articles. We work with uh, Center of Analysis, Strategies mm -hmm. and Technologies. Uh, many authors from there uh -huh. uh, work with us. So in, even in uh, um, defense uh, ministry, people are reading it. And Can I ask uh, who funds it? Oh, uh, the military industry complex mostly funds it because... Um, 
they are not giving money just for uh, magazines. They are buying some uh, commercial advertising. Uh, advertising things inside it. So uh, most of articles are neutral and uh, just analytical, mm-hmm. but there are some articles which are mm-hmm. uh, just bought by... Uh, and you publish in Russian and in English. Uh, we have two issues in English this year and three issues in Russian. So so it's not the same that one issue is just translated it? No, it's not the same uh, because English issues, uh, you can see them uh, in Europe, in uh, India, mm-hmm. in uh, South America mm-hmm. on big okay. events. Uh, and who, so you said some of the s- folks who work for CAST uh, write for the journal. Who are um, who are the civilian experts on the Russian military and Russian military industry these days? Where do they come from? Do they come from universities? Do they come from journalism? It's an interesting question uh, because Military analytics, not military journalism. It's not very, uh, not very many of military, real military experts you can find who are not working in mil- uh, Ministry of Defense, maybe or some, somewhere else. Most of uh, them earn money uh, by writing some articles for media because there is no other way to mm-hmm. earn something. Because there are very few think tanks in Russia. They are very small. They are. Uh, they don't have big finances, so this is like uh, only think tank which is doing uh, nice military analysis is uh, CAST, which we already mm-hmm. mentioned, and it's pretty small, and you can't compare it with American think tanks, which mm-hmm. you have, I don't know, I think more than 2,000 of them, I guess. There are a lot of think tanks. So, But Russia, some of them are smaller and more effective and less effective. Some of them are bigger and more effective. Some of them are smaller and more effective. It's There's yes. a wide range. So uh, the most of uh, Russian uh, military information is some articles in media, and many of them lack professional, uh, professional view and have too much uh, mistakes or propaganda or something like this. So what are some of the issues that you think uh, don't get enough attention um, in the Russian military development uh, space? It's hard to answer this question. Of course, uh, people like reading things about tanks, about nuclear weapons, about something big and uh, strong. But uh, there are many other things in army which are not so popular for civilian people who are just interested in uh, Military. I don't know some engineering forces, some uh, okay. other things. So, what is what should we be interested in about the engineering forces? I don't know some repair vehicles uh, which uh, uh, are made, which lack in army sometimes, and medical and evacuation vehicles. They are pretty old and need replacement. There are some processes going on this, but uh, they are uh, they are not going fast, and uh, Russia need to make more mm-hmm. on this topic. What is your assessment overall of the progress of reforms and the success of reforms? You mentioned this; these are some areas where uh, perhaps it hasn't moved as quickly. What's your overall assessment of the state of the Russian armed forces? I think quality become uh, became much better at these times. Uh, you can see it everywhere. It's not difficult to see that. But still, uh, there are many questions. And still, Russian Navy is getting worse and worse because new ships are not built. Mm-hmm. Uh, they are trying to build them, but... Uh, 
they don't have propulsion systems for uh, new ships because uh, only Ukraine made them and now there is no trade between these countries. But uh, maybe time will solve these problems, maybe not, because uh, Navy is not getting much money from government and uh, not only money is the problem, you can give uh, m- money to just... Uh, to somebody but he won't make something good from it right, you, you can't you always need, be certain there, there are a uh, complex of uh, I don't know these factories and manufacturers is in very low state now so uh, they are making uh, repairs of one ship for 10 years I know sometimes this is a big mm-hmm. problem and I don't see I don't see it changing this time so you see the investment continues to be mostly in the ground forces and then to some extent to the Air Force. That... Uh, we had seen a pretty big uh, investment in Navy in last armament mm-hmm. program, but it was not effective. It was um, uh, two times more than land forces investment last time, but uh, uh, they they couldn't uh, use this money well, so uh, we don't see the progress really. We see only progress with submarines mm-hmm. uh, but we don't see prob- progress with... With surface ships. Yes. And, and uh, now they give much less money for new armaments program. And Na- Navy will have two times less money and now uh, land forces mm-hmm. will give will have a big money because, as I understand, they want to build uh, new tanks and new armored vehicles for these new projects. Uh, T-14 Armata, mm-hmm. uh, Kurganets 25 and other new projects. And what is your sense of how the ground forces feel about these new technologies? Are they excited about them? Are they? Do they not expect to see anything that soon? Do they expect that it will only go to a few units anyway, so it doesn't matter? A minister of defense is saying that uh, there are plans to buy 2,000 Armata tanks, but uh, I don't think, I think it's too early to uh, speak about that kind of numbers because now the first bunch of uh, tanks is uh, going to test into the army and we will see. Will they want to buy more or how many mm-hmm. more they will buy? Still, Armata is much cheaper than any tank made in Western countries. It's much more expensive than. Uh, T90 or T72, but it's still uh, uh, cheaper than Western one. Right, but the Russian defense budget is also smaller than, say, the American defense budget. Yes, of course, of course, it works this way. But if you really want to buy a new tank, you can buy, I don't know, 500 of them. It's not solving uh, global problems, but Russia is not doing big wars now, and no country is doing big wars. If you need to solve something in Syria or somewhere else, it's having uh, 100 or 200 new tanks is enough. For so that that's an interesting question that you raise, uh, whether Russia is investing in the right forces for the wars it's fighting. Uh, and what, what's the mix? I, if you look at how Russia exercises, it actually it exercises for very big wars. If you look at the wars it fights, it fights pretty small wars. Um, is it buying weapons for big wars or small wars, or is it trying to do both at once? I think uh, it's trying. Russia is trying to do both because uh, if you have so big country, so big army, you need to do exercises uh, for both for little local conflicts for a big war. Of course, 
it's there, there are not no big chances that we will see a World War Three or something mm-hmm. like this, or even a big regional conflict. Or if we see World War Three, it won't last long enough to use up all those armada tanks. We don't or... know how it will look. Maybe mm-hmm. they will just start with conventional. Then when the site one of sites will see that he's that it's losing, it will start using nukes, and everything will go. That's the, that's certainly a plausible hypothesis for World War Three. Yeah. I don't think that it will happen, uh, but uh, maybe some big regional conflict i don't know uh, you will never know what will happen in five mm-hmm. or ten years now things are changing very fast like imagine a, a war of russia with turkey i don't know it's a pretty big war but it's not nuclear and it's not it's conventional it's uh, where would it be fought this war between russia and turkey in uh, south Caucasus, in south maybe Caucasus? maybe in Syria. In uh, Syria, there's a bit of a, certainly a conflict between the We had people, seen Russia already once, uh, the, the war was really close when the Su-24 was uh, shut down. Shut down yeah. because, so you will never know what will happen. So it's, uh, Russia is a kind of country which must have a capable army to fight with big countries too. Like USA, I think, is it's doing training also for big wars and for small wars. All the things, all the time, with of all course. the money. Of course. Uh, that does raise the question. So if you look at Russian operations in Syria, what do they tell you about Russian forces, Russian investment, uh, how how Russia's um, armed forces are likely to evolve? What, what, what weapons uh, will they be buying based on what you've seen in Syria? Uh, we have seen many new weapons used in Syria by Russian forces. It's uh, new cruise missiles, or the air-based cruise missiles. Uh, they were pretty effective. Of course, Syria is not a real enemy for using them, but uh, still, they were uh, they were used nice nicely. But uh, Russia is not producing very many of them. Uh, you can't compare the producement of Tomahawk missiles in USA or calibers in Russia. Also, Russia have not many carriers mm-hmm. for calibers if we compare it to USA. I don't know. In Russia, maybe you will count maybe 100 of them. Mm-hmm. I don't think that much more. <clears throat> but still, it's interesting for uh, doing some uh, precision strikes. And we saw it. That so we Russia saw precision is making... strike weapons, right? I'm not sure we saw much in the way of actual precision strikes where you might have yes. needed one, right? You. We see, uh, we saw new uh, corrected bombs, mm-hmm. uh, prestigious bombs. We saw some uh, smaller air launch uh, rockets, uh, which are much more prestigious than before. Of course, mostly Russia is using uh, just traditional bombs without guidance right. guidance systems. But still, sometimes they use uh, the new ones and they showed them not bad mm-hmm. but the producement of them uh, of these new weapons is pretty at, at low rate so uh, russia just don't have too many of these bombs to use only right. them do you expect it to produce more or do you expect this mix to continue uh... in new armament program the new uh, precision weapon weapons they got uh, big f- financing so i think that uh, we will see more of them in army because the older Soviet uh, weapons uh, are getting older. You, it's no use to buy a Su-30 SM fighter mm-hmm. if you don't have good uh, air-to-air rockets or something like this. Then you mm-hmm. just have the same plane like uh, mm-hmm. before. Do you see an evolution in Russian procurement over the last few years in 
Are there changes in how uh, the defense ministry deals with the defense industry? Have have they gotten better at uh, getting more quality for money? Yes, if you will compare it with uh, 90s or beginning of 2000s, the effectiveness is much more and there are much more control now. It's pretty difficult to steal money now if you are working in military industry. You think corruption is under control? Uh, you can you can never say that there is no corruption, but uh, when they have I don't know, you must build uh, fifty new uh, fighters. You must build them. It's, it's not work. It's not working other way now. Maybe you will need some more time for that. But now they are building, really building them. And before what? they were just uh, getting money and were just uh, sitting. And uh, after five years, you couldn't see anything. So what what did the Russian government do to get better results? Uh, control mechanisms, more control mechanisms. So they give you money uh, and they are not giving you the whole money from beginning. You get, I don't know, one million from ten. You do some work, then you show this work and then they give you the next one million. Mm-hmm. It works something like this. And how competitive is defense procurement in Russia now? Is the contract signed usually with a single firm and then that firm produces for for most weapons? I mean, obviously, it depends on the weapons. But actually, it would be interesting to talk about how this works differently for different systems, whether there's a tender that goes out and lots of firms can apply or whether there's a deal made with a single firm or just one or two firms that can compete. It's not working this way in in Russia like in USA when you have, I don't know, Lockheed Martin and Boeing uh, fighting for this F-35 project who will build this fighter. No, it's not working like that. It worked at, uh, when the USSR was alive. Mm-hmm. It worked that way, like MiG and Suhoi. And there were much more stronger manufacturers that time. Now uh, Russia more, comp- comp- uh, more is more competitive with uh, some other countries, uh, so they are making a new weapon to sell it somewhere, and they are t- mm-hmm. looking that I don't know. USA have F-15, and uh, we need to make a plane which is uh, cheaper and uh, have the same mm-hmm. characteristics. So it works like this. If we took this. Uh, strategic weapons which you can't sell there are not many uh, many manufacturers for that so uh, most of them are these guys are doing liquid mm-hmm. fueled rockets these guys are doing uh, solid, fuel. solid fuel so it will it looks like this who is uh who's building the new weapons that uh, vladimir putin announced on march 1st which firms have those contracts oh like uh, if you took this glider mm-hmm. vehicle, it's uh, NPO Machinostroenia. Okay, so that's an old that, that that's an old venerable company that's been around uh, a long time. Yes, uh, they are the they have most of, most of te- the hypersonic technologies mm-hmm. in Russia because uh, they started that in the USSR. All this glider technology, it's not new. Uh, USSR had the Albatross mm-hmm. project, which was uh, actually the same avant-garde. But uh, uh, still, uh, there were no uh, no such technologies to the, to do a serial producement in USSR. Mm-hmm. Then we had 90s, where there were no military budget at all, practically. So 
Now they are starting to okay. finish Soviet mm-hmm. projects. So what other firms are doing some of these other programs? Uh, spoken about this underwater torpedo, uh-huh. there is no actual information about it. It's really difficult to say. Uh, what about other weapons? If we took the uh, Iskander, mm-hmm. it's a uh, corporation, Taktiske Raketne Vaaruzhenye. It means tactical... Tactical rocket weaponry. Yes, uh, most of uh, rockets, uh, tactical mm-hmm. rockets, are made by this company. Also, the new hypersonic missile will be made by this uh, mm-hmm. cruise missile will be made by this company. So it's still a small number of companies that have most of the contracts. And this Sarmat missile is made by Makayevs. Yes, uh, there are not many companies. So right. So we've had. Um, We've had some excitement in the South Caucasus recently with an Armenian government that uh, voluntarily stepped down in the face of protests, which raises the question of whether Russia will become militarily involved in its neighborhood uh, as time goes on, if, if there's unrest in Armenia, if there's unrest somewhere else, uh, and whether it has the right forces for that, for peacekeeping operations. Uh, what do you see in that realm? You mean defending the regime in Armenia or what? I don't understand. I don't, uh, I think whatever Or fighting Russia- with Azerbaijan and Turkey. What do you mean by this question? Um, I was thinking more peacekeeping missions in case of domestic unrest, but I suppose oh, all uh, things are possible. Uh, so we see that uh, this uh, protest made the prime minister to reject. And yeah. I don't think that in Russia everybody was... No, everybody was very uh, calm about it in yes, Russia. because... Uh, I don't think that uh, they really liked Ser Sarkisyan in Russia too. He's just uh, this kind of politics uh, who nobody likes. But I'm just thinking in terms, in the 1990s, most of Russia's military interventions abroad were in its neighborhood and were peacekeeping missions broadly defined. I am wondering if we expect and if the Russians expect to see a resurgence of that again. Russian forces in Armenia are uh, keeping Turkey from uh, getting involved in the conflict uh, in Nagorno-Karabakh. Mm-hmm. This is their main mission because, of course, Russia don't want Turkey, Turkey to be involved mm-hmm. in anything in South Caucasus because mm-hmm. Russia uh, want to dominate in this region and uh, uh, this is why these forces are uh, are there. And they are not very big. It's five thousand, five thousand people personnel. It's like eighty tanks, uh, eighteen fighters, MiG twenty nine. So uh, it's not enough for fighting with uh, Turkey or Armenia or Azerbaijan. It's just uh, Russia is here. It's a presence. If you will attack, uh, it's a tripwire. Armenian border from Turkey. Uh, the Russia will just start uh, doing some. Uh, airstrikes and will bring more mm-hmm. army there. So what do you think are the technologies to be watching in the future? Um, what, what what are some of the directions you think the Russian military may go technologically, which will be interesting to watch? Oh, it's an interesting question, but in Russia, many projects are a top secret things. And so there's no di- knowing? It's difficult to know about them forward when you the interesting things may be uh, making making uh, small cruise missiles like uh, ha 50 which is mm-hmm. now in development uh, you can use it with su-34 frontline bomber you can use it with 
222 so you will get more carriers for uh, these weapons and it will be cheaper than big H101 uh, missile and uh, this will solve some of these problems we talked talked before that Russia don't have much carriers for cruise mm-hmm. missiles uh, and this will solve a problem with INF treaty because uh, this is why Russia maybe just really wants to make some ground launched uh, cruise missiles because it don't have uh, sea based like USA but it does it does but very few there are very few if you will compare with well it could always build more sea based missiles uh, you can't build uh, enough ships because uh, okay. your manufacturers are doing bad mm-hmm. work. So and this is your explanation for the INF violation is that uh, it's uh, not it's only, too hard to build this? Not only one, uh, not only explanation. Also, other countries are building uh, intermediate range missiles. Sure, well, that's been the case for a long time. I mean, that that's the argument against the treaty both in the United States and yes. in Russia. But, and we see, uh, but generally, countries don't just violate the treaty in response to that. They... You can't say that uh, Russia really violated it uh, at this moment because if we are talking about RS-26 mm-hmm. missiles, it's closed. It's not going uh, to be in army anymore until tw- mm-hmm. 2027, I think. Uh, it's not. Uh, no tests. Tests mm-hmm. are conducted already for uh, three years. I, I, I guess yes. And if we are talking about this. Uh, cruise missile, intermediate range. We don't have much information about it. I think they are ready to produce something mm-hmm. like they are ready to produce it in mm-hmm. big numbers if there will be a, mm-hmm. if we meet need of that. So why do you think the Russians went this far with production of a system that wasn't treaty compliant? Do you think it was just defense industry getting ahead of itself do you think they thought that the Americans wouldn't notice? What explains uh, taking those additional steps that made it treaty non-compliant? I think they just completed the scientific works uh, and because they are not very hard, because you have the Calibre missile, you have the H-101 missile, and it's not very hard to adapt it for the uh, land-based launcher. They just made this work. And I don't think that will, they will produce uh, real missiles in big quantity. But the United States have said that they're deployed, so... The United States says that they are deployed, but we don't have the fact information. Maybe one regiment is deployed, maybe it's not deployed. It's difficult to judge on that because we haven't seen them. Maybe, uh, because we can see this MK-41s in uh, Romania and in Poland also. Mm-hmm. If you read the treaty, it's really written there that there should no, not be any launchers which are, which are capable of carrying. Right. Well, and I think, but I think there's a way to resolve the MK41 problem, and I think the United States has offered to do that. But you know that MK41 is capable of carrying tomahawk. tomahawk. So, you can so, do, you can put a tomahawk so, right, there, so, there anytime. So, right. So fine. So if you had asked me what the explanation is for the U.S. deployment of the MK41, which is potentially treaty non-compliant, the answer would be it never occurred to anybody that it was treaty non-compliant because it wasn't intended for that purpose. So it was just an oversight. And I think now the United States would be willing to take steps to make it clear that that's not what it's doing. So kind of the same question for Russia is what happened to get to that Maybe it made nervous uh, some uh, people in defense ministry Mm -hmm. in Russia that uh, U.S. have plans to deploy MK-41s, maybe. Maybe, though the 
Russians didn't complain about the MK41s until after the United States brought up the Russian violation. Yeah, so I, it's really difficult to know what is in the people's heads. So okay, uh, okay. I think uh, USA won't need uh, a long time to develop uh, land-based cruise missiles either. No, it's US not. had the uh, the land-based Tomahawk missile before. You can just make. Some right, but the United States is very legalistic, so they won't. They will continue to be in line with the treaty, right, up until they uh, they say that they will develop, but won't build exactly. them. Yes, but uh, when USA will need it, it will just say, "I'm getting out of INF treaty." Right, which Russia could also do. Russia have less political and uh, military and other waiting world. So when Russia is doing such things, everybody starts. Uh, attacking it, that you are violating this, you are violating mm-hmm. that. So it will be hard to explain why Russia is getting out of INF Treaty. The USA just can't get out and say, we want to do that mm-hmm. that way. And nobody will complain from NATO, from other... Only China and Russia will complain about that, so it's to be easy, fair. It's better to violate the treaty and get accused of violating it than to pull out of the treaty? We still means? don't know if it's uh, really how how it's violated, how what at what level it's violated, or it's not violated. I don't know if Russia really wanted to violate it. Why it's not building this RS twenty six missiles? Okay, I don't know. I, maybe it's a way to uh, show that we need a discussion about that. that okay. We need a discussion about BMD. We need a discussion about INF treaty. You are not listening to us. We will make a. So this is how mm-hmm. maybe the way they are thinking. So you think that the Russian government is interested in further arms control? I think it's uh, the, uh, it's di- also difficult to say how people are thinking there, but I hope that they are thinking this way because okay. I don't think that arms race is the thing that world needs now. Great. Leonid, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you too for nice talk. All right. That was an interesting discussion. Um, you know, one of the things that came up in there was Armenia, which is going through a pretty unprecedented period of uh, political turmoil now. So we thought it might be a good idea for our current events segment to talk a little bit about what's going on in Armenia. So an interesting question to ask is, you know, how unprecedented is this? Armenia has had political protests that were successful before. Armenia has had changes of government. Yeah, I mean, it's. For, I don't know how closely mm-hmm. our listeners follow political developments in Armenia, but one of the things that's interesting about it is that it has had a relatively pluralistic political system for its history as a independent post-Soviet country, and there have been elections and changes of power, um, even though it's sort of a semi-autocracy. And in fact, I mean, this is what uh, brought on this this last wave of protests is that um, the guy who'd been president of Armenia since 2008 uh, had been planning to become prime minister and in fact, very briefly did yeah. <laughs> become prime minister. Right. So it's interesting that the government, the 
is controlled by Sargsyan's party, or has been up until now controlled by Sargsyan's party, decided to allow him to step down and become prime minister rather than, say, finagle a way to allow him to become president again. But at the same time, right, they did switch the constitution to make the prime minister the more sort of powerful um, position, which is what triggered the the outbreak of these protests. Right. I mean, it was uh, sort of a, uh, you know, a Putin 2008 scenario almost, right? Yeah. The idea that mm-hmm. I want to stay in power, but I don't want to mess with the Constitution too much. Mm-hmm. I don't want mm-hmm. – I, I want to try to do this subtly. But they did mess with the Constitution. But they did mess with the Constitution, yeah. It's yeah. Uh, it's an interesting phenomenon. And the other thing that's interesting about it, right, they vote, uh, they vote him prime minister on April 17th. The protests actually started a little bit before that. People, right. people this knew this was, was going to happen. In the works. And I mean, the other thing that's interesting is how the, the protests played out from the beginning, because the, the leader of the protests, um, Nikol Pashinyan, is a member of parliament from a, another party, but from a very small party. Uh, he hasn't been up until now one of the major um, opposition figures, but he's been really successful at galvanizing people to come out in the street, not only in opposition to the constitutional change and to Sargsyan remaining in power, um, but has really um, been pushing to have himself appointed prime minister instead. And he looks like it looks like he's uh, about to be successful. By the time this posts, he may be uh, yeah. he may be prime minister. Yeah, although the there's still plenty of political intrigue ahead. You know, he's uh, managed to get some of the political parties that had been in Sargsyan's coalition to uh, effectively defect and support him. But at the same time, Sargsyan's own party, the the Republicans, uh, have hedged their bets a little bit, and it's unclear um, whether they're going to support him. Well, it looks, uh, as of today, as we're recording this on May 3rd, it looks like they agreed to, right? On May 1st, they, they said, said they wouldn't. On May 2nd, there were more protests. Yeah, they on- said they would support anybody who got a third of the right. parliament behind them. So it's... Seems likely, but which looks like Bashinyan. I mean, who else is going to? Or you have, yeah, or nobody. You, nobody does. I think is the the question, right? There's not an alternative, but there's the possibility that there could be more political maneuvering. That you could have a an interim government. That you could have, you know, really prolonged uh, political uncertainty. Right. Well, and he is going to have to create a government as prime minister. Yeah. And then there's the question of do they who's in it? Who's in it? Do they maintain the system with a very strong prime minister right. going forward, which is an accident of uh, Sargassian's trying to stay in power? Uh, is that then st- still going to be the way this country is governed? Yeah. Um, and, you know, because Pashinian's party is not particularly large, uh, he has this big protest movement of, of people in the street, but he doesn't have kind of the political infrastructure backing him. There's going to have to be some kind of negotiations and coalition with other political forces. And what are the uh, trade-offs that these different forces are going to demand? I mean, the other interesting thing, which is something that uh, Leonid and I discussed a little bit, is that Russia has been very hands-off through all of this, which is smart, I would argue, from Moscow's uh, uh, standpoint. But Moscow isn't always smart when these yeah, things no. happen. Uh, and it's it's worth noting, I think a lot of this has to do with the fact that there's absolutely no way to point to any kind of Western meddling here. Which doesn't mean that that's not something Russian commentators have been talking about. I mean, I think there is a, a strand of analysis in, in Russia, in the press, and probably in the government too, that sees this as being kind of a rerun of the, the Orange Revolution or the, or the Euromaidan uh, as part of a, this Western-inspired scheme of, of regime change. That said, 
you know, there's not a, a political figure in Armenia who's calling for membership in NATO. Uh, so there's not clearly this divide between sort of pro-Russian and pro-Western um, right. political forces. There's absolutely no reason to think mm-hmm. that uh, any government that takes uh, takes form in Armenia uh, over the next days, weeks, months, however long it takes, is not going to be pro-Russian. Well, is not going to be at least – realistic about the realities of of Armenia's situation, which includes Russia's military and security presence, its large role in the economy, and and the extent to which Armenia is dependent for its security on Russia. Right. Well, in the same way that no uh, imaginable Armenian government is going to say, hey, never mind about Nagorno-Karabakh. Azerbaijan, you can have that back. Yeah. Well, and that's an interesting question, too, is how does Nagorno-Karabakh play into all of this? Um, You know, whatever Pashinyan stands for, he doesn't seem to be any more dovish on Nagorno-Karabakh than the current government, if anything, is probably a little bit more hardline on it. He hasn't um, said much on the topic. I mean, he's, but in, he's, in terms of his his record over the course of his time in parliament and, and before that as a journalist. But more than that, right, is what does Azerbaijan do in the midst of all of this political uncertainty in Armenia? Right. And if you follow the Azeri press, they're a little bit nervous. Yeah, well, and, and there's a lot of people in Armenia who are nervous too that Azerbaijan may decide to, you know, take advantage of the turmoil to, to do something. It's, uh, it is potentially exciting. Well, this part of the world is, is often exciting, uh, for better or worse. But this one, we did, really didn't call this one. I, you know, it's, it's amazing. Um, a few weeks ago, we actually had an event on Ar- Armenia on the eve of, of, uh, yeah. of uh, Sirxian's uh, becoming prime minister. and The video of which is available on our website. Yeah, no, we, we have a link uh, mm-hmm. in the show notes. You can watch it. And it was a great event and a terrific conversation. But, no, you know, everyone predicted the status quo would – people would suck it up and accept um, – that there's no alternative. That there's no alternative. But yeah. people did not. I mean, they, the protests were, you know, were really th- that they got so big that they lasted so long. Mm-hmm. That was a surprise. Yeah. Well, and the other question, I suppose, is, uh, you know, the protests were organized largely over social media. And so far, you know, Armenia hasn't gone down the path of, of Russia or China, for that matter, in terms of really trying to, to crack down on and regulate social media. It'll be interesting, depending how this crisis plays out, I suppose, whether that is uh, something that the the new government is going to look into. Well, we will, we'll be watching from here. Yeah. So that's it for our show today. We've got a link to Lenya's publications and magazine in the show notes and also to our discussion of Armenia from a few weeks ago. And uh, once again, a reminder to those of you who haven't, uh, please subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, uh, where you can also leave us a rating or a review. And for those of you who are not iTunes users, you can check us out uh, and subscribe on either Google Play or SoundCloud. Finally, uh, one more reminder to send in your mailbag questions to rep at csis.org. I put the words Russian roulette in the subject line. Uh, we look forward to hearing from you. We did a mailbag just recently, but we promise to do them more frequently going forward. Assuming you send us mail. Right. If we have no mail, there will be no mailbag feature. You can follow us on Twitter uh, at CSIS Russia, and uh, you can follow us individually as well uh, at Olya Oliker and at Dr. J. Mankoff. 
Finally, a big thanks to everybody who works so hard to make this podcast happen every other week. That's our research assistant and program coordinator, Cyrus Newland, our intern, Claire Hafner, and the entire CSIS external relations and iLab team. And thank you, as always, for listening, and we will be with you again in a couple of weeks. Thank you. Thank you.